Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present author and abortion rights activist Jenny Brown, who assesses the Supreme Court's 5-4 ruling refusing to block a Texas anti-abortion law and the threat it poses to reproductive freedom across the nation. Lindsay Kashgarian, Program Director of the National Priorities Project, who discusses her group's new report titled State of Insecurity, The Cost of Militarization Since 9-11, and Osprey Oriole-Lake, Executive Director of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, who talks about the group's Global Women's Assembly for Climate Justice that takes place virtually September 25th through the 30th. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In the aftermath of massive floods across Germany, the Social Democratic Party, or SPD, candidate Olaf Scholz, the nation's finance minister, has surged in recent polls to replace retiring Chancellor Angela Merkel. Scholz won support for being a trusted hand as German voters contemplate change for the first time in 16 years. Christian Democratic Union candidate Armin Laschet stumbled, and Green Party candidate Annalena Barbach, who caught fire in the spring, has now lost support. Going into the September 26th election, Schultz is showing strength the center-left hasn't seen in a decade. At the same time, German voters are more skeptical of Joe Biden and U.S. leadership and may be eager to exert their own global influence, especially in relations with Russia and China. Four years ago, Germany's national election was dominated by the rise of the far-right Alternative for Germany, AFD party, and anti-immigrant fervor. Now, Germans are looking for new leaders in Berlin on important issues including climate change and trade with China. The SPD is running a unified campaign with left-wingers supporting the technocratic Schultz, who has years of government experience. If elected chancellor, Schultz would likely go beyond Merkel in implementing policies to achieve a carbon-neutral economy. The Economist magazine reports that the SPD leader would likely be tougher on Vladimir Putin than Merkel, who negotiated deals with Russia on the conflict in Ukraine. Southeast of Tucson, Arizona, lies the site of the proposed Rosemont Copper Mine, inside the Coronado National Forest. First approved by the U.S. Forest Service in 2017 under Donald Trump, the open-pit mine would extract 600 million tons of rich ore. If allowed to start operations, the mine, a subsidiary of the Canada-based Hud Bay Minerals, is projected to produce 1.2 billion tons of waste rock and another 700 million tons of toxic tailings. The proposed mine's fate is now in the hands of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, as environmentalists and Native communities challenge the basis of a 150-year-old federal mining law. The General Mining Act of 1872 has long been interpreted to give the mining industry the right to occupy public lands upon which valuable minerals have been found, no matter a mine's impact 
on environmental or cultural resources. But the unconstrained freedom to mine may soon be coming to an end. That's largely thanks to the persistence of Roger Flynn, an attorney whose nonprofit Western Mining Action Project has been suing mining companies with frequent success for more than a quarter century. Mother Jones magazine reports that Flynn is now awaiting a decision on the Rosemont mine from the Ninth Circuit Court. A win there would not only stop Rosemont in its tracks, it could also forever change the face of public lands mining across the West. Working in coal mines has become increasingly dangerous as the industry has more frequently hired contract workers in recent decades. These non-union workers are forced to work longer hours and are fearful about speaking out about dangerous conditions without protection from a union. According to In These Times, the proportion of deaths among mining contractors has surged between 2007 and 2015. In the early hours of January 5, 2019, contract worker John Ditterline died in Hamilton County Coal Mine No. 1 in Illinois where a third of the miners there are contractors. He was killed after being pinned by a malfunctioning door. The Federal Mining Safety and Health Administration concluded workers at the mine weren't trained on how to respond if the door malfunctioned. Bob Sandage, who runs a staffing company, says contract miners usually earn $1 to $6 an hour less than miners hired directly by mining companies. According to a 2019 study at the University of Illinois School of Public Health, the increasing reliance on contract miners saves coal mine owners money but correlates to longer working hours and higher rates of injuries. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed into law a measure that prohibits abortions as early as six weeks, before most women know they're pregnant, that took effect in Texas September 1st. The legislation opened the door for almost any private citizen to become abortion bounty hunters, allowing individuals to sue anyone participating in an abortion and be awarded at least $10,000, as well as costs for attorney's fees if they won. By a 5-4 to four vote, the conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court refused to block the Texas law, maintaining that it was not ruling on the constitutionality of the Texas legislation, but in so doing permitted the state to impose the most restrictive abortion law in the nation and inspired other GOP-controlled states to impose similar laws. The Supreme Court will soon be hearing a challenge to a Mississippi law that would ban most abortions after 15 weeks which many reproductive rights activists believe could lead to new limits on abortions nationwide and possibly overturn Roe v. Wade, the high court's ruling that legalized abortion in 1973. Your reporter spoke with Jenny Brown, a member of the National Women's Liberation and a leader in the fight to permit the sale of morning-after pills over-the-counter in the U.S. Author of the book, Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now, 
Brown discusses how Congress could act to protect women's right to choose and halt the conservative-dominated Supreme Court's attack on reproductive freedoms. Basically, um, the Supreme Court took it out of the lower court's hands and said, well, we haven't had enough time to think about this, this really novel idea that citizens could basically be bounty hunters and, and enforce anti-abortion laws against random women that they don't know. And, and so, gosh, we just don't know about it, but we're going to let this law stand and see what happens. Now, this is provisional. The lower court is still, is still considering it and is actually going to be deciding whether or not it, it should be let stand. Um, but when the abortion providers of Texas uh, asked the higher court to suspend the law in order to have it considered by the lower court, they and the Supreme Court refused, which is why we now have this situation in Texas where people who want an abortion after six weeks, essentially, um, it's illegal to get one. And if anybody helps them, they would be subject to being sued. So that's obviously created a lot of chaos and stress for, for everybody who's in that situation right now. There's a lot of hand-wringing right now among Democrats with their slim majorities in the House and Senate and the the Senate filibuster that they're powerless to do anything. From your perspective, what can they do at this moment? Well, right now, that bill, the the Women's Health Protection Act, which would make it illegal to restrict abortion rights in in state laws, um, has 48 Senate co-sponsors. So it's it's got a lot of it's got a lot of people supporting it already. And there are two Republicans in Alaska and Maine that are um, say that they're for uh, abortion rights. So you could have 50 senators quite easily. The problem is the filibuster, right, where 40 senators – I mean, people think it means you have to stand up and give speeches and wear an adult diaper and whatnot. That's not the filibuster. The filibuster these days just means that 40 senators say they're not going to support something, and that completely takes it off the table for the entire country, right? So um, I think a lot of things are right now piling up behind this excuse that the filibuster, we can't, we can't end the filibuster, we can't end the filibuster, including a $15 an hour minimum wage, which would be substantial and important for, for a lot of people. Um, the idea of a Voting Rights Act, which would reintroduce a right to vote in states where the, that's being chipped away, the idea of a Green New Deal, all of these things are held up and are apparently inconceivable just because of this rule in the Senate. So I think that there, there are growing forces um, asking that that rule be changed. And I think, you know, this particular situation brings a lot more forces into play to ask that the filibuster be changed. And of course, people say, well, if the Democrats get rid of the filibuster, what will happen when the Republicans get back in? Well, there's nothing to stop the Republicans from ending the filibuster when they take power. And given the tenor of the Republican Party right now, it's very likely that that's exactly what they would do. So all of this hand-wringing about the preciousness of the filibuster is we, we have to think about, you know, what are we really saying? It's okay for this undemocratic rule to stop all the things that we need in our country for people to have decent lives and, you know, freedom to control their reproduction, but to harden our infrastructure against the ravages of climate change and actually to reverse climate change. I mean, these are very important things that are being held up. And the legislature that we rely on nationally to do these things is completely hamstrung and has been for 
for a long time, it, I think it's time to, to look at that. The Women's March organization nationally has called for October 2nd protests on this Texas law and the role of the U.S. Supreme Court here. You have a particular suggestion for the movement in terms of their targets during these upcoming protests. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think they picked October 2nd because the Supreme Court goes back into session the Monday after that. So it's womensmarch.com if people are interested in signing up. There are 90 groups signed on. It's not one big march in D.C. I think they worried that uh, all the travel that would be required to do that would spread COVID. So there are marches in every state. And I think that the the target, and this may well be the target, I'm, I'm not privy to some of the discussions that they're having, should be the passage of the Women's Health Protection Act and the and the ending of the filibuster in order to do that. So I think that is a good target. I, I do not think that the courts should be the target anymore, just simply because I think the Supreme Court is, is set on this course of rolling back abortion rights to the point where basically nobody is going to have any rights. I think that the proper target is Congress, and we need to light a fire under them to, to guarantee our rights to abortion. And and then, you know, there are a lot of other things that we could get if we really push $15 an hour minimum wage, Green New Deal, the PRO Act, which would make it essentially legal again to organize unions in the United States. All of these things are blocked up by the filibuster. And so it's time for us to really demand that the Democrats take action and do some of the things that we need. And this is a, this is a big one. That was Jenny Brown a leader in the fight to permit the sale of morning-after pills over-the-counter in the U.S., and author of the book Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now. For more analysis and commentary on the Supreme Court's inaction on the Texas abortion law, visit our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. It's been 20 years since the 9-11 terrorist attack on New York City's World Trade Center and the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., that included the hijacking and crashing of four airliners with all their passengers. The casualties resulting from the worst terrorist attack in U.S. history was 2,977 people killed and more than 6,000 others injured. Not long after the 9-11 attacks, President George W. Bush launched the U.S. military invasions and occupations in Afghanistan and then Iraq. Presidents who succeeded Bush continued these wars and expanded the field of battle to include Somalia, Libya, Yemen, and other nations around the globe. A new report from the National Priorities Project titled State of Insecurity, The Cost of Militarization Since 9-11, found that the U.S. war on terror cost the United States government more than $21 trillion at home and overseas on militaristic policies that led to the creation of a vast surveillance apparatus, worsened mass incarceration, intensified the war on immigrant communities, and caused incalculable human suffering in nations targeted by the Pentagon. Your reporter spoke with Lindsay Kashgarian, program director of the National Priorities Project and lead author of the report, who summarizes the study's disturbing findings. So when we were thinking about this report, uh, we were looking forward to the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and thinking about all the ways that our country and the world has changed since then. Um, in particular, all of the ways that we've changed as a result of our response to 9-11. And that includes everything from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, which have been spread to other countries, to 
Syria and Pakistan and Yemen and other places. Uh, but it also includes a lot of our immigration and border policies here, um, which all shifted after 9-11 as part of the U.S. response. Uh, and a lot of big part of why we are where we are today on those things. Um, so we wanted to understand all of this and kind of look at overall as part of the response to 9-11 and the militarization of the U.S. Uh, both both in terms of our wars abroad, but also right here within our own borders, all of what's taken place in the last 20 years uh, as a result of, of 9-11, and also what we didn't do because we were so focused on that response. And what we found is that over the last 20 years, the response to 9-11 in terms of the military, our wars, the militarization of the border and immigration, and federal law enforcement has cost $21 trillion. What do we know about the death toll and the destruction that was wrought in these wars launched post 9-11? Yeah, well, thanks to our uh, colleagues of ours at the Cost of War Project at Brown University, they've estimated that um, there have been 900,000 lives lost, nearly a million people uh, in the U.S. war on terror over the last 20 years. And there have been almost 40 million people who've lost their homes, have been displaced, uh, and are now refugees uh, within either within their own countries or refugees from their own countries. So it's it's a tremendous human toll. Um, and of course, you know, we focus on the dollars. We're a budget project, but the human toll, of course, is what we're really looking at. What really matters here is the fact that these wars have cost 900,000 lives, including many, many civilians. Worry, we've all been hearing a lot about the U.S. drone attack in Afghanistan recently that killed 10 people, including seven children. And there has been attack after attack like that uh, in Afghanistan and these other countries over the last 20 years. We haven't heard about most of them, but the cumulative toll of all of them has been tremendous. One of the essential questions that comes out of 20 years of this war on terror after the 9-11 attacks is, is America safer than it was on 9-10-2001? Yes, that, that is an essential question. And part of what we do in this report is think about that question, uh, not just in terms of terrorism, right? That was, you know, the event on 9-11 that spurred all of this was was a terrorist attack. But, uh, but that is the only thing that is putting us in danger. In fact, right now, it's it's far from the top of the list of things that are putting us in danger. So, you know, thinking about the pandemic, which has cost more than 600,000 lives just in this country, uh, thinking about things like the opioid epidemic, which costs almost 50,000 lives every year in this country, thinking about things like uh, the housing crisis, where right now we have a situation where when eviction moratoriums and there will be millions of us who are at risk of being homeless um, because of how the economy has shifted under everyone's feet during COVID. So thinking about things like that, you know, those things are security too, right? We need health, we need housing, we need mental health, and all of those things are forms of security too. We look at how we haven't invested in those things as a result of our big investments in counterterrorism and then all of the spinoffs of that around immigration and federal law enforcement and all of those things. Um, and we also look at the way that it's not just that the response to 9-11 hasn't made us safer. It's actually made the world more dangerous. 
And that's probably the most clear when you look at what's happening in Afghanistan right now, where it's incredibly clear that it has not made Afghanistan safer. And in fact, Afghanistan is just as bad off as it ever was and probably worse because of our 20 years of war there. So some, those are some of the ways that it has made us, not just not made us safer, but made us much less safe. That was Lindsay Kashgarian, Program Director of the National Priorities Project and lead author of her group's new report titled State of Insecurity, The Cost of Militarization Since 9-11. Find a link to the report and related articles by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Climate change is the hottest topic on the planet, as catastrophes of wildfires, hurricanes, flooding, and droughts take center stage around the world. From September 25th through the 30th, the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, or WECAN, is hosting the Virtual Global Women's Assembly for Climate Justice, bringing together speakers and attendees from around the world to address the critical issues connected to these disasters through a feminist lens. The Assembly calls on women and feminists to stand at the forefront of policymaking and through this gathering will call for immediate action to address the climate emergency. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Osprey Oriole-Lake, Executive Director of WECAN, who talks about the topics to be explored at the Global Assembly and the fundamental causes of the climate crisis. The Global Women's Assembly for Climate Justice um, is organized by the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, WECAN. So we are the main um, organizers and hosts and designers of the event. And we're really honored uh, to have over 100 global partner organizations who um, are joining us to uplift the event and participate with us along with over 90 speakers from 40 countries at this point. Uh, So we're really excited about the representation uh, from the global community. What we're doing is we are uplifting women and gender diverse voices to really demonstrate community-led solutions, strategies, policies, and frameworks to address the climate crisis. You know, leadership at the United Nations has said that this is code red for humanity. And we are saying we're drawing a red line to say, you know, that we need to act on climate justice now. And so a lot of the different uh, speakers and panels are going to be addressing the fact that for decades, women, feminists, Black, Indigenous, Brown, community leaders, frontline community speakers um, have been really talking for a long time around a lot of the root causes of the climate crisis, as well as solutions. So we're going to be um, you know, online for six days with 20 panels featuring topics from forest protection, which is central to climate solutions, both in terms of protecting old growth forests, as well as regenerating forests and reforestation projects, how indigenous rights are a solution 
to the climate crisis and the role of indigenous rights and the role of indigenous leaders and in resistance movements, um, feminist frameworks for climate policies and new economies. We will be talking about food security and food sovereignty, renewable energy, ocean projection and sea level rise and so much more because uh, we see that there needs to be coherence across all sectors with a feminist lens and women's leadership. We know that women around the world are impacted first and worst by the climate crisis due to unequal gender norms. And yet when we look at all the statistics around who are the backbones of a lot of the movement that we see towards solutions and movements that are very successful, as well as women in high levels of leadership roles that women are really leading the way so that we really want to show all the variety of ways and different arenas in which uh, women are demonstrating their solutions. So uh, like I said, there's 20 panels over six days to really delve into a lot of different topics in great depth and with a feminist analysis. Osprey Oriole Lake, I feel like a lot of climate activists don't look at the underlying problems that have led us to this point, but your gathering is going to do that. Can you explain a little? The reason that we're gathering all these amazing leaders from around the world is that the climate crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic, and socio-ecological injustices have emerged from interconnected systems of capitalism, racism, the commodification of nature, colonialism, imperialism, and patriarchy. And if we're going to really address this moment in time, which is a result of how we have been living for a very long time, we have to really confront these deepening crises and accelerate a path forward that has collective coherence to address the protection and defense of human rights and nature and uphold community-led solutions. And what that means is that we have to understand that all of these interlocking crises didn't just suddenly happen. It is a result of a worldview and a system change that we have been needing to address for a really long time. So the ideologies and societal norms of white supremacy, patriarchy, colonization, and capitalism really continue to be at war with both people and planet and interfere with the healthy and just world we seek. And so when we're talking about solutions, we need to really understand that as an example, indigenous black and brown women, people of color, are harmed first and worst because of these systemic problems. And when we look at solutions, we need to really center BIPOC communities. We need to center nature. We need to center all the communities, whether they're human or non-human, and center their voices and their solutions. That was Osprey Oriole Lake, executive director of WeCan, the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network. Learn more about the virtual Global Women's Assembly for Climate Justice, which is free and open to all genders, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. B 
Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WRFA in Jamestown, New York, KUGS in Bellingham, Washington, KPOV in Bend, Oregon, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. <laughs>